BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. spectacular scenery of the South African province of Western Cape, located in the southwest of the country, lures thousands of overseas visitors every year. Tourists and locals alike marvel at the magnificent coastline and pristine beaches, which meet the Atlantic and Indian Oceans. The vibrant shimmering greens and golds of the vineyards and orchids of the Cape Winelands region, around a 45-minute drive west of the city of Cape Town, also known as the Mother City, provide a picturesque contrast to the surrounding mountain ranges. The population of South Africa is a unique mix of cultural influences. From centuries of white European settlement, from places such as the Netherlands, Germany, France, and Britain, combined with the peoples of Indonesia, Madagascar, and natives of West Africa, the country has an impressive 11 official national languages. The Afrikaans language which is a product of both European colonization and indigenous Khoisan, is the third most spoken language by many South Africans, in addition to English. But for all its beauty and cultural diversity, the risks associated with both visiting and living in South Africa are oftentimes confronting. The country is known for having high rates of violent crime, including murder, rape, 
carjacking, robbery, and home invasions. South Africa's crime statistics result from the complex intertwining of social and public health issues, dating back to European colonization and continuing post-apartheid. These include extreme poverty and high unemployment amongst the country's marginalized black and colored populations, ongoing racial and social tension, alcohol and drug use, and the high rate of HIV transmission. Across the country, there are around 625 burglaries per day. And in the last 10 years, the murder rate has been steadily increasing, now sitting around 58 murders per day. Bloomberg noted in July 2020 that South Africa's murder rate of 36 killings per 100,000 people is over five times the average international rate. In March 2020, the U.S. State Department Overseas Security Advisories Council published its most recent report on crime and safety in South Africa. It noted that violent crimes such as home invasions occur not just at night, but at all hours of the day. Many intruders prefer to break into homes when occupants are home, so they can readily hand over concealed valuables while any alarms are deactivated. In a country where only 10% of the population of almost 60 million people is white, racial and economic inequality and high rates of violent crime have resulted in the construction of almost 6,500 private gated communities. These secure housing estates offer state-of-the-art security in the form of electric fences, 24-hour foot vehicle and dog patrols by armed security guards, CCTV and thermal imaging cameras. These aren't the only benefits. Residents of secure neighborhoods, who are almost exclusively wealthy white South Africans, enjoy lifestyle advantages including exclusive access to golf courses, restaurants, and gyms, all without having to leave the confines of their upscale compounds. For many privileged families, it really is an idyllic way of life. It provides reassurance that the risk of home invasions is minimal. Most of the time, that is. Now, let's get on with it. In 2005, the Van Brutta family were living in a well-to-do suburb of Pretoria, the capital of South Africa, located in the northeast of the country. Martin Van Brutta had met Teresa Dutoy in the city in 1983, and the couple married in 1990. Both were highly successful in their own right. Martin had a degree in civil engineering. One of seven children, Teresa hailed for Johannesburg. She studied computer science at her hometown's university before going to work for a global tech company, IBM. The couple welcomed their first son, Rudy, on July 10, 1992, followed by Henry on November 1, 1994, and their daughter, Marley, on October 12, 1998. The family was close, and everyone around them, they seemed to have a perfect life. They went on numerous overseas trips and also often holidayed at one of their three homes in South Africa, including the family farm. They enjoyed spending time in the outdoors, going water skiing and boating. Van Bredas were also well-educated, intelligent, and well-mannered. Martin was a likable, ambitious, and highly respected businessman, known for his professionalism, integrity, and assertiveness. Over the course of his career, he became the director of at least 25 companies, Balancing this by spending his downtime indulging his passions of watching rugby and playing golf. Busy with three active children, Teresa was a loving mother 
who gave up paid work to become a stay-at-home wife and mother, completely devoted to giving her family the best. In early 2006, the family immigrated to Australia, settling in Perth on the west coast where Martin took over directorship of the Australian arm of an international property development firm. The family settled in, and privately, Martin and Teresa were relieved that at least for now, their children would grow up in a country which was relatively safer than South Africa. When it came to the children, Rudy was highly personable and a talented sportsman with a flair for rugby and rowing. His happy-go-lucky, easy-going nature and desire to help others made him popular with his peers. Henry was more of an introvert and spent hours playing video games. As a child, he had a stutter. After receiving speech therapy for numerous years, this improved, but Henry was still what some family and friends would describe as polite, but a loner. Like Rudy, Marley performed well academically and was popular at school thanks to her friendly and caring nature. She enjoyed all the typical preteen pastimes, like hanging out with her friends, going to the beach, and shopping. In Perth, the Van Bretta boys attended the exclusive Scotch College. Rudy and Henry both went on to study at the University of Melbourne. Rudy studied science before commencing a master's degree in engineering, while Henry enrolled in a physics degree. In 2012, Martin, Teresa, and Marley relocated interstate to the east coast of Australia. They settled on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, where Martin continued to work for the same property development firm. But Teresa had started to miss her family back in South Africa, and around that time, Martin's business interest in his homeland was also expanding. The father of three had a longtime passion for education, and his newest project, and his newest project was building independent schools in low-income areas, taking into account his other business ventures such as establishing companies with an interest in security. It was no surprise that the family fortune was estimated at $16 million US. Rudy and Henry were to stay in Australia until they'd both finished university. In late November 2013, Martin, Teresa, and Marley returned to South Africa. They moved to Gordons Bay, a 45-minute drive southeast of Cape Town in the Western Cape Province. They took their beloved dog, Sasha, with them, who always slept in the house was a treasured member of the family. Marley started school and in early 2014 started dating a fellow student named James, a talented rugby player whose parents were also family friends of the Van Bruttas. That March, Martin, Teresa, and Marley relocated to the luxury Desoltsa Wineland's estate in Stellenbosch. It was a half-hour drive north from where they currently lived and is the second oldest town in South Africa established in 2002 with an average house price of 9 million rand. The exclusive housing estate had around 420 properties. It had controlled access and a wide range of medium security features, including electronic fencing around the 7.5-kilometer perimeter, CCTV and thermal imaging cameras, as well as regular security patrols. The estate was surrounded by farmlands, an airfield, and municipal land, and boasts a vineyard, golf course, and a restaurant. The Van Bruttas' new home had four bedrooms, four bathrooms, two living areas, and a pool. Like many white South African families, in October 2014, they employed a domestic worker named Precious, who came to the house three times a week to clean, wash, and iron. When the family moved in, 
Teresa made sure Precious was aware of where a list of emergency numbers were stuck on the fridge in the event that she needed them. The numbers included the homeowners association, the hospital in Stellenbosch, a 24-hour emergency number, the number of the remote monitoring service, and the security manager. The Van Bruttas were such good friends with Marley's boyfriend's family that they gave them an access card to allow them to enter the estate whenever they needed. Five months later, in August 2014, Henry moved back to South Africa into the new family home. He hadn't finished university, but was said to be taking a gap year to reconsider his plans. Like Precious, Henry also knew about the list of emergency numbers on the fridge. Marley's boyfriend James, who often came around to the house, struck up a close friendship with Henry. By this time, Henry was a smoker. He hid his habit from his family, but Precious knew he smoked in private. When Christmas 2014 rolled around, Rudy and his Australian girlfriend flew back to South Africa to join the family to celebrate. During his stay, Rudy shared a bedroom with Henry, which was upstairs on the first floor. Mid-January 2015, Rudy's girlfriend returned to Australia. 22-year-old Rudy planned to join her the following month in time to commence the final year of his master's degree. 55-year-old Teresa was looking forward to traveling to Italy to attend a cooking course. 20-year-old Henry had recently started dating his 16-year-old girlfriend named Bianca, whom he'd met at a family barbecue. During the very brief time the couple had been dating, Bianca observed how much Henry admired his older brother and also enjoyed a close relationship with his sister. 16-year-old Marley was nearing the end of her high school education, and Martin and Teresa wanted their daughter to remain focused on her schoolwork and upcoming exams instead of spending all her free time with James. Martin was a loving father, but also strict, and wanted to ensure all his children made the most of their educational opportunities. On the afternoon of January 26th, the van brought his domestic worker Precious, saw Teresa, Rudy, and Henry at the house before she finished work for the day and went home. Rudy had been napping on the couch under a blanket. Earlier that day, Henry and his girlfriend Bianca had gone to the beach together after school before she attended water polo practice around 5 p.m. Around 6.30 p.m., Henry and 54-year-old Martin unwound in the living room with a bottle of red wine and whiskey. Rudy had gone out for a run, but Teresa and Marley were home. The family enjoyed dinner together in the dining room around 7.15 p.m., finishing at 8 p.m. Afterwards, the whole family except Teresa watched TV, and Henry had a nightcap of rum and coke. Around 9 p.m., Martin and Marley went to bed. Henry and Rudy stayed up until around 11 p.m. to the room they both shared, but Henry didn't go to sleep straight away. He streamed an animated TV show to his laptop, watching it until around 3 a.m. To try to get to sleep, he listened to some music on his cell phone. Henry eventually took his headphones out, placing his phone on the bedside table. Soon after deciding to go to the bathroom, he walked into the ensuite attached to the boys' room, taking his phone with him. Just after 7 a.m. the next morning, Henry dialed the South African emergency number 
and calmly spoke to the operator, requesting emergency assistance. What is Steven? What is your emergency? I um yeah, I need an ambulance. Lots of um. You need an been, ambulance. Yes, please. What's your name, sir? Uh, Henry from Bradar. Henry, what's the yes. contact number you're phoning from? Um, my home phone number, but um, I'm not sure what the home phone number is. My cell phone. Uh, we're at 12 Husker Street, please. What is this number that you're phoning from? Is there someone else that can speak if you're not able to? No. I'm Who else is in the house? There's no one else. There's I one need else the is. contact number, please. Yeah, okay. 021. 021. Double eight double zero. Double eight double zero. Four nine three. Four nine three. And you need the ambulance to go to what? Number twelve, Hoska Street. Hoska. Hoska. G O S. G O S. K E. What area is this? It's in Stellenbosch, and it's it's in the Zolta Estate. Number twelve, Hoska Street in yes. Stellenbosch. Yes. I'm not picking it up for Stellenbosch. I'm picking it up for Bortesig Molniton. Um, well, we're in, okay, in, in the Zolta Winelands. It's an estate. Um, D-E, and in other words, Z-A-L-Z-E. D-E-Z-A-L-Z-E. Yeah, D-E. I'm not picking it up eh, for Stellenbosch. What area in Stellenbosch are you in? Um, I I don't know. That's all that we're in. Zolta Wine, and it's an estate. It's a security estate. Are you sure it's 12 Hoske Street? Yes, Hoske absolutely. Is in eh? And you yes. saying you out in Stellenbosch? Yes. What? And you don't know what area in Stellenbosch? It's. I'm not sure how, mo how much more specific I need to be. Double eight double zero four nine three. Yeah. Just check the number. On the list system. That number picks up. Mm, I'm picking up Bach Street, number four. No. In Stellenbosch. Yeah, can you please just send an ambulance or more than one ambulance to Desolta Wineland in Stellenbosch? Desolta? Yeah, can you find that please? Desolta. Sir, they're going to ask you the same thing that, that I'm asking you because you're giving me two different addresses. Desolta in wine, um, Wineland in Stellenbosch. Desolta Wineland is the, is the estate. Stellenbosch is the town, and um, Hoska Street, number 12. Okay, Hoska Street, number 12. Is there a school or church near where you say? Um, a landmark? There's, well, there's just the, the estate clubhouse, I guess, or the golf course. And what there's else? Also, there's also a golf course. You mean the main road as you drive um, to The main road, I think it's the, the R44. What? R44. I think so, yeah, between Somerset West and Stellenbosch. And the R44, is there a garage, a school, a church near to where you stay? There's, I'm um, just across from the, um, there's a, a mall. Um, what? Eikerstadt Mall. No, not Eikerstadt Mall. 
um, there's a BP across from me. Um, Alan Bosch. Going to the Mesa, you say there's a BP. Yeah. Is that all you know, the BP garage? No other shop near in your area? Yeah. Okay, try Desolza Golf Club on my phone's maps, that's what it's called. Desolza Golf Club. Yeah. Um, it's, oh. it, it's the estate next to Techno Park. Next to Techno Park. It, yeah, it's by Jamestown as well. The detective came and knocked on the door. And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Uh, Jamestown. Yeah. What is Jamestown? Jamestown's the next suburb next to us. And you the patient? No, no. My family is someone attacked my family. Hey? Someone has attacked my family in my house. (laughs) Okay, so you need the police or the ambulance? An ambulance, please. Yeah. Who is Um, injured? My, I think everyone. Everyone in your house? Everyone, four people, yes. Adults, two adults? Two adults and two, well, three adults and one teenage girl, yes. What are the injuries? Um, head injuries, I look. Are they conscious? I don't think so. My sister's moving, but that's it. Suspects still on scene, Lisa. Sorry? Are there any suspects on scene? Uh, no, no, they ran away. With what were they attacked? I, um, a, an, an axe. I, it, it was, I, I, I think I blacked out and I've just woken up. With an axe. Okay, stay on the line. I'm going to speak to the police. Thank you, but please send an ambulance as quickly as possible. Yes. Are you the only one that's conscious? You know, yes. the others are unconscious. Hold yes. on. Let's speak to police to check on your number, where you are. If you don't know your street name, you say. The, the street name is Huska Street. Okay, I'm not picking it up on the contact number that you're giving me. Okay. Just hold.
The operator knew Henry was calling from a landline, but even after speaking with police dispatch, it was still difficult to locate his exact address. The operator got Henry back on the line to have a three-way conversation with the police. Finally, they asked Henry for his cell phone number and were able to pinpoint his location. Henry had been on the phone for almost half an hour, and despite what he was reporting, he was unusually calm the entire time. So calm, in fact, the operator reported to her supervisor after the call that she thought it was all a prank. When police arrived at Hoska Street, they found Henry sitting outside the house, dressed only in sleeping shorts and socks, which were stained with blood. He had superficial cuts to his chest and arms. Blood had run partway down his chest and dried. There was also a large stain on his sleeping shorts, which was later found to be urine. At some stage, before he'd called the police, Henry had wet himself. Officers noted he seemed shaken and quite emotional, but he wasn't crying. Police observed that the front door of the house was slightly open. Police sat Henry down outside the front door with Sasha. According to the book, The Dissolves Murders, by reporter Julian Jansen, Precious had also arrived at the house. While the police were on their way, she turned up for work as usual, only to be greeted by something no one should ever have seen. She was understandably traumatized and inconsolable. The Van Bretta home was situated near the middle of the estate, surrounded by other houses, and was the second last residence in a cul-de-sac. Next to the last house was a hedge, a road, and an open space. Narrow, winding roads link the houses to access roads, with open fields in some areas of the estate. The home didn't have any security bars on the windows, but police noted that the windows on the ground floor were open. In the tiled entranceway of the home, bloody footprints and blood spatter could be seen on the floor. On the lounge room table, Teresa's open handbag contained 880 Rand cash, a Monopoly box, magazines, laptop, and notebook lay undisturbed. On the coffee table was a watch and hard drive. The kitchen appeared clean, but on the counter were a bottle opener, a packet of cigarettes, a lighter, cordless home phone, and cell phone. Two drawers were open and cigarette butts had been discarded on the floor near the fridge. A blood spot was found on the door leading from the kitchen to the pantry. On the dining room table were a closed laptop, open documents, and a glass of water. In the study was an open laptop bag. It appeared that somebody had worked in there recently and the cupboard doors and drawers had been left open. The entranceway led through to a set of white-tiled stairs to the upper level of the house. The stairs were in two sections, with a landing halfway up. At the foot of the stairs lay a pair of men's shoes, a bloodied axe weighing 1.17 kilograms, and measuring around half a meter long, was lying on the first landing. Strands of hair were stuck to the blade. Blood spatter, streaks, and bloodied shoe prints covered the stairs, landing, and laminated floorboards at the top of the stairs. A section of the wall above the staircase handrail was damaged, with a divot in the plaster and underlying concrete. On the paintwork surrounding the damaged part of the wall was blood spatter and a streak of blood. At the top of the stairs, near a bookcase and the entrance to the boys' bedroom, lay Teresa and Marley. Teresa was laying face down in a pool of blood, wearing a sleeping vest and underwear. 
Skull fragments and brain tissue were in the vicinity of her body. Blood spatter on her right leg and buttocks looked like something had dripped onto her body from a moving object. Marley lay on her back with her feet just inside the door of the boy's room. Police initially thought she was dead, but then saw her move her right arm and foot. She had barely survived and held a blonde hair entangled in the fingers of one of her hands. When paramedics arrived and moved Marley, blood poured from underneath her and ran down the stairs. The teen was rushed to a hospital where she underwent emergency surgery and was placed into an induced coma. Inside the boys' bedroom were two single beds placed next to each other with a dressing table and a dog bed for Sasha in between them. Blood clots and spatter were found on Sasha's bed. The entrance to the ensuite bedroom was situated near the end of Henry's bed. A carving knife with an 18-centimeter long blade belonging to a set from the kitchen lay on the bedroom floor, partially under Rudy's bed, which was soaked in blood. Rudy was wearing boxing shorts and lay face down near the ensuite doorway with his feet pointing towards the door. Blood was smeared all over the laminated wood floors and on the walls. On Henry's bed, the fitted sheet had been pulled off one corner. His gray duvet, which was blood-stained, had been rolled up and placed on the floor next to Rudy's body, on top of a pool of blood. From the way the blood had dried on the floor and the presence of blood clots on Rudy's bed, it appeared that Rudy had been killed in bed. His body left there for some time. He was then dragged or moved onto the carpet through a pool of blood to between the two beds towards the ensuite. Martin's body was kneeling on the floor, slumped over the side of Rudy's bed. He too was clad only in boxer shorts. Martin's head lay in a pool of blood against a blood-spattered pillow. More blood spatter could be seen from the wall above Rudy's bedhead. Martin, Teresa, Rudy, and Marley had sustained similar severe head, neck, and throat injuries. Whoever had unleashed the excessive level of violence upon the family had clearly been totally out of control. While the family had sustained defensive wounds, the attacker had primarily aimed the axe of the heads at his victims. Several windows on the upper level of the home were open. In Martin and Teresa's bedroom, a laptop was on a chair and an iPhone was undisturbed. Marley's iPhone and laptop were also charging in her bedroom. Apart from the open cupboards in the study, there was no sign of the ground floor being ransacked. The back door was slightly open, but the family's two Mercedes-Benz ML and E-Class vehicles remained parked in the garage. To investigators, everything in the house looked uncharacteristically neat and otherwise a picture of normal family life, down to the clothes hanging on the line outside. Like Marley, Henry too was brought to the hospital for treatment that morning, but thankfully he'd only suffered shallow stab wounds and minor lacerations. Henry was right-handed, and most of the wounds, which were unusually uniform, were on his left side. These included four parallel cuts on his left forearm, cuts above his right nipple, and two stab wounds to the left side of his abdomen. The guts were all of similar depth and had conveniently avoided more sensitive parts of his chest. None of Henry's injuries to his body had resulted from a fall, and doctors expected signs of concussion or a head injury, but there were none. Henry's fingernail scrapings were taken to DNA analysis. There was no indication that he'd consumed alcohol or drugs. 
He was very quiet during the examination. Henry had a bruise under his left eye and on his forehead, but there was no evidence of bruising on his body, which could reasonably have been expected following an intense physical struggle. After the medical exam, Henry was taken to the police station at 3.52 p.m. to be interviewed. Listener, as you heard in our introduction, South African law enforcement are unfamiliar with being called to reports of violence and home invasions. What had been inflicted upon Martin, his wife, and two of his children shocked even the most seasoned investigators and deeply disturbed the Van Bruda's neighborhood. The unsuspecting family had been attacked with unbridled ferocity, not only in their home, but in a security estate in an upmarket area. How could someone have possibly snuck in with a weapon, butchered almost an entire family, and escaped undetected? The Van Brutta and Detoy families were shattered and in a state of disbelief at the incredibly painful and distressing news. The attack was utterly senseless. There was also no telling whether Marley would recover from her life-threatening injuries, and if so, her future quality of life was uncertain. Both she and Henry's lives had been irrevocably turned upside down. Both sides of the family rallied around the two surviving siblings to provide as much support as they could, hoping that the police would quickly identify a suspect. But investigators knew that Henry's evidence would be vital in determining who had killed almost his entire family and the sequence in which events had unfolded. After all, he'd been at the house the entire time. It was in detectives' best interest to treat Henry as a witness for as long as possible in order to ensure his cooperation with their inquiries. When Henry was interviewed, he gave a detailed account about the sequence of events. He told police that when he went to bed the previous night, he watched a TV show on his laptop until 3 a.m. and then listened to music on his cell phone using his headphones. Not long after, he went to the bathroom with his phone in his pocket and closed the door. Henry played games on his phone while on the toilet when he suddenly heard a noise from the bedroom. Henry cracked open the bathroom door, hiding slightly behind it. He saw a man who he described as tall, well-built, and black, wearing dark clothes, gloves, and a baklava. Henry saw the man attack Rudy with an axe. Henry felt immobilized. He froze to the spot out of fear, too scared to move. He called out to their father for help. Martin awoke and ran to his room, switching on the bedroom lights. He tackled the intruder in an attempt to come to Rudy's rescue, but the attacker, who Henry claimed was laughing, proceeded to strike Martin repeatedly with the axe. Henry told police he felt incapable of taking any physical action to intervene, protect his father and brother, or try to escape. The attacker left the room, and Henry stated he heard Teresa's voice from the hallway, screaming, quote, What's going on here? Henry didn't see what happened next, but heard Teresa being attacked. The next thing Henry knew, the man had re-entered the bedroom and was coming towards him, still laughing in a high-pitched way. Henry managed to wrangle the axe from the attacker, but the man lunged at him with a knife. A struggle ensued, and the man stabbed Henry in his side. Henry managed to strike the attacker with the blunt side of the axe before pulling the knife out of his side and dropping it on the floor. The attacker fled from the room, but Henry gave chase down the stairs, throwing the axe in the man's direction. Henry missed the man, and the axe struck the wall. In the scuffle, Henry lost his footing and fell down the stairs. 
Staggering to his feet, he chased the attacker towards the kitchen and out of the back door. Abrethus Henry could no longer see any sign of the man who seemed to have disappeared into the night, swallowed by the darkness. Henry went back inside the house, now noticing that the lights were on in both the study and his parents' bedroom. As he walked back up the stairs, he caught a glimpse of Marley and Teresa lying in the hallway outside the boys' bedroom door. Henry told police he didn't have the emergency services number on hand, which is why he didn't call them straight away. Following the attack, he tried to call his girlfriend Bianca at 4.24 a.m., but the phone went unanswered. At 4.27 a.m., Henry tried Googling the emergency number, telling police that he was on the stairs when he lost consciousness. Henry couldn't say whether he'd passed out due to shock or his injuries. He didn't know how long he'd been unconscious, but came to around 7 a.m. Henry couldn't remember where the family dog Sasha was during the attack or whether she'd been barking during the melee. Henry told police after he regained consciousness, he saw his mother and sister lying in the hallway, but Marley was moving and breathing slightly. Henry fetched his cigarettes, which he hid inside his shoes at the bottom of the stairs, lighting himself a cigarette to calm his nerves. He googled the emergency number and dialed it at 7.12 a.m. from the landline. At 7.20 a.m. and 7.22 a.m., he again tried to call Bianca, but there was no answer. Henry told police he walked outside the front door briefly, then headed back inside. While he sat in the kitchen waiting for the police to arrive, he smoked two more cigarettes. Henry stated that the Van Brothers were very close, and he denied having any arguments with any members of his family. The evening before, he told police he didn't know that an axe was kept in the house, which was something odd, given he'd been living back at home with his family for five months. Henry did say he was confident he could recognize the attacker's eyes and voice. It was certainly a harrowing account by anyone's standards. At the end of his interview, police offered Henry the opportunity to read through his statement to confirm he was satisfied with the contents. Henry skimmed through the electronic copy and confirmed it was okay to print. It wasn't exactly verbatim, and there were grammatical and spelling errors, thanks to English being the second language of the officer who took the statement. But inside, Henry was exhausted and just wanted to go home, so he signed it. Later that evening, Henry was taken for medical treatment twice, at 8.25 p.m. and then at 9.45 p.m. During both visits, he was fully orientated, and tests didn't indicate any signs of concussion like amnesia. Instead, Henry displayed selective memory loss. At his first visit, the doctor noted Henry appeared confident, non-emotional, and spoke casually with the staff. The doctor noted that Henry's breath smelled slightly of alcohol. He'd admitted he'd had a beer after his police interview, but a blood test revealed no drugs in Henry's system. When Henry returned for the second time accompanied by the police, he was introduced as a suspect. He answered the doctor's questions coherently, but this time, Henry was less friendly and more formal. When the postmortems were performed, the horrifying extent of the attack on the family was fully realized. But I think that wraps things up for this week. To hear the conclusion of the case, be sure to tune in next time for part two. Thank you for listening, and as always, 
Keep the fire burning. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.